Thanks, Dan. Um, now, I'm actually going to ask you to open up to a different passage to any of the ones we read, and that is Psalm 51, because that is what we're going to be looking at together um, today. So if you've got a Bible home, please make sure you open that up. Let me pray for us. Our loving Father, you tell us that every word of the Scriptures has been breathed out by you. And so our prayer this morning is that through these Scriptures you would teach us, that you would rebuke us, that you would correct us and that you would train us in righteousness because we want to be equipped, Father, for every good work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every psalm is a song for God's people to sing. But not every psalm connects so immediately to every believer every time that they read it. Psalm 51 should. Psalm 51 is every Christian's song. It's a song that could be sung every single day of our lives and still fit. And what's more, can I say that if you're checking out Christianity um, today, it is a great passage for you as well, because if you want to know what it is to be a Christian, then this song needs to be something that you are ready to sing. Because this is a song that's about sin and repentance from it, as we rest on the mercy of God. So I'm going to ask you gently a question to begin with. Where are you struggling with sin at the moment? Maybe there's some relatively immediate things that you have come straight into your head. Uh, maybe, and, and are more pressing and recent. Maybe they've been there for a while. Maybe there's some things there that you're conscious of that have been there for a long while. Well, what are they? Because what I want you to do this morning is to bring them up to the surface of your thinking as we look at this psalm together. Because we're going to go on a journey today and for many, it may be as it was for David, a deeply emotional journey because Psalm 51 is a song of truth of a soul that's been laid bare before us, a song of complete personal honesty that recognises that the problem of sin is not out there somewhere, it is far closer to home. But my hope is that at the same time it will be a beautiful journey a journey from darkness to light, a journey of redemption where burdens are lifted and where hope is rekindled. You know, repentance is central to the Christian life and as we look at this great psalm together, we're going to explore what repentance really is. And it begins in a place that we can easily miss when we think about it. That is that repentance begins with rebuke. It begins with rebuke, with a confronting testimony to the sinner of their sin. So have a look at the very important context of this psalm, the, the, the superscription, Psalm 51 verse 0. For the director of music, a psalm of David, 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. The incident that provoked this psalm was the darkest moment in David's life. With his reign as king firmly established now by God, he is convinced that he no longer needs to be the one that goes off to war. He could actually leave his subordinates to do that now. And while they're off fighting his battles, he was in his leisure walking the roof of his palace one night and he saw one of those soldiers, one who was out fighting his battles for him, he saw one of his wives bathing and he lusted after that man's wife and he had her brought to him and committed adultery with her. Her righteous and loyal husband Uriah had no idea about this. But when Bathsheba fell pregnant, it was clear that the affair would soon be exposed. And so David tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home from the siege, getting him drunk to try and encourage him to sleep with his wife. But out of solidarity for his fellow soldiers, still up the siege, Uriah wouldn't do it. And so David contrives with the commander of his armies to place Uriah dangerously close to the city that the um, walls of the city that they were besieging so that his enemies would kill him and that's what they did. And so now with his rival out of the way, David is able to take Bathsheba to be his wife. You see, he thought he'd gotten away with it. But God saw. And here's the thing, God always sees. And so he sent the prophet Nathan with that chilling rebuke that was our first reading. In front of his whole court, David's sin is exposed and, and his shame is clear as, as this dreadful truth is, is laid bare. And this psalm, psalm is a song that shows David's reflections, his song, his response to that rebuke. A rebuke that shocked him out of his wicked delusion about his own righteousness. A rebuke that reminded him that nothing about his thoughts or actions were hidden from, pardon me, were hidden from God, the righteous judge of all the earth. A rebuke that brought him low, but in so doing, it proved to be his salvation. Because what it did was it confronted him with the reality of his sin. And that his only hope lay in actually asking a merciful God for his forgiveness. And so that is his request that begins the psalm and is actually the heart of what this psalm is all about. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, that is the cry of a repentant heart. It's a cry that looks to the character of God whose perfect justice is only exceeded by his unfailing love and by his great compassion. But what I want you to notice there and that we will explore as the psalm moves on is that David doesn't just ask for God to forgive him. Repentance, we're going to learn, is more than that. David is asking God to change him. Now, before we move through the rest of the psalm, I want us to think about the reality um, for ourselves for a moment. Repentance begins with rebuke. 
You won't repent unless someone or something confronts you with the reality of your guilt. Now look, that is a painful place to start. And it's a humbling and sometimes shame-filled place to start as we get cut to the heart by the truth that we've been ignoring or denying in ourselves. But here's the thing, like all healings, redemption begins with a negative diagnosis. Now, that rebuke, we need to understand, might come from a number of different places. It might come from a friend who's got your best interests at heart and they've got the courage to tell you the truth. But do you know what? It might come from an enemy who doesn't have your best interests at heart and wants to rub your nose in it. It might come from a talk that you hear. It might come when you observe someone facing consequences for a sin that they've done that you go, I do that. The rebuke might come from a positive example that someone's living out that actually highlights what you're not doing and what you didn't have the courage or will to do. The rebuke might come from the innocent observation of one of your children or the tears of your spouse. The rebuke can come from reading the scriptures, often will. Maybe even the nagging of your own conscience. But the path to repentance and therefore redemption begins there, with rebuke. Whatever the source, the repentant heart, the heart that is aware that sin does exist within it, is prepared to listen and to weigh up and then heed where such a rebuke is speaking the truth. So, let's ask ourselves a question, how prepared are you to hear a rebuke? I mean, to really listen to it. It takes humility, doesn't it? If we make a habit, and we know this of ourselves, of defensiveness, if the walls shoot up like one of those security screens in a bank, the second that we're criticised or corrected, then what we're doing is we're creating an environment around us where people will fear or just give up speaking the truths that we need to hear because they know how we're going to react. And that is not in our best interests. Now, I know why we often do this, because we've been hurt by harsh words before or maybe because we're feeling insecure and vulnerable and so we're trying to protect ourselves... If so, then can I say, reminding ourselves, as David does here, of God's unfailing love for you in Christ, you need to let that feed your security because you are secure in Him. And that security enables you to open your ears and listen. But on the other hand, if we make a habit of passivity or silence when we see a brother or sister doing wrong, or falling into sin, we need to realise that likewise, we're actually aiding and abetting them in their sin. We're helping keep those entangling vines around their ankles. We need actually courage, accompanied by gentleness and humility, to rebuke and to speak. You know, David would write later in Psalm 141, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That's oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. 
Proverbs chapter 25, verse 12, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Well, the rest of this psalm takes us on a journey through David's path of repentance. And in the next four verses, David models for us that true repentance fully owns its sin. And it does this in two ways. First, we see David recognise the truth about his sinfulness. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. See, the thing about sin is that it is is often is smothered by lies. Lies to others, yes, but especially the lies that we say to ourselves. In the midst of sin, we often deny its sinfulness. We make excuses for why we do it or why we think it. We minimise the seriousness of it. We rationalise and seek to justify it. We look at the fact that others do it and that Therefore, it can't be that bad. And we blame. We blame others, we blame circumstances, and we can even blame God. But as we heard in Psalm 36 last week, we can flatter ourselves too much to detect or to hate our sin. It's one of the reasons why rebuke is actually needed in the first place, because something needs to point out the existence of something that we are actively in denial about. All right, so what I want you to do is go back to that, those sins that I asked you to think of earlier. Got them in your mind? The key to true repentance is that no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, we need to look our sin in the eye. We need to call it what it is. You need to be able to recognise that your porn habit is adultery, it is lust. You need to recognise that your greed and your covetousness is actually idolatry. That, that your rudeness to people online is being hateful and harmful. That your manipulation of others is self-serving. That your lies are lies. That your selfishness is selfishness. That your laziness is a self-absorption that your undisciplined tongue is careless and callous and unloving. You've got to call it out. What David models for us here is that repentance means holding your sin up before your eyes and owning it. And when we really do that, we start to recognise properly the deadly seriousness of it that my sin is actually wicked and that it is worthy of God's judgment. Verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says. So you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, there's a line there that might be making you go, what? Against you and you only? Have I sinned? That's pretty big. <laughs> Coming from someone who's abused his power, who has betrayed a friend, seduced his wife, and then had him killed to cover it up. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the, the guy that he dragooned into his plan in order to kill someone? Well, this is poetic hyperbole 
Of course, David knows that he sinned against them and he's sinned against others. But what he does acknowledge here, and that Nathan's rebuke that we read about earlier pointed out to him, is that he was God's chosen king. He was given rule over God's precious people. He was meant to lead them with righteousness and model faithful obedience to them. Instead, what had he done? He despised the Lord's commandment. If you've got the Ten Commandments, you could draw a line through half of them with what David did. And he brought harm and corruption to his people. He recognises that his sin against God is so great and so primary, the sin that really was the root of all the other sins, that in the end, that is actually the ultimate sin. It may as well be the only one, it's so big, that truly consumes him and is by far his greatest crime. He needs God's mercy because he knows that God's declaration of his guilt was undeniably true. And so any judgment he received would be just and well-earned. Now, can I say that's what confession is about? That's why confession is such an important thing for Christians to do. You know, one of the things that contributes to some sins hanging around for us is that we only partly acknowledge them. They float to the surface of our consciences and we observe them quickly before we look away and we push them out of our mind and get on with things. And so they don't get dealt with. But confession of sin to God in prayer, and sometimes also with people that we trust who are asking to help us or to keep us accountable, it means that it's much harder for sin to sneak back under the rug where we can't see it. God knows it's there always. There is no rug before Him. We're the ones that are so often blind to our own sin. And so we need to name it for what it is. And that's what confessing, we need to confess, say out loud, it's sinfulness. You know, when we pray together as a church, we acknowledge our sin to God in the presence of one another. um, And that is healthy. But can I encourage you to do this today? When next time you're alone in prayer, can I encourage you to get specific to God about your sin? Take your time. Don't just ask for forgiveness generically for sin. Confess what the sins are. Bring them into the open with yourself before God. Think about what you've done. Think about what you failed to do. Well, having admitted the truth of his sin, David now owns responsibility for it. Verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, it's what this is saying is kind of that the whole Bathsheba incident didn't just catch innocent David at a bad time, right? He's admitting that. Um, this is no half confession sort of, sort of admitting, admitting sin, but claiming righteousness with the next breath that says, hey, yeah, but that's not the real me. David's saying, it is the real me. You know, the Hebrew word for sin basically means to fall short. And David admits that sin has actually been his companion for all of his days, all his life. He has been prone to fall short. He's saying sin is nothing new or foreign to me. But he won't plead ignorance. He's not going to claim diminished responsibility or pretend to be a victim of sin. Look at verse 6. 
yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He may have been sinful from his very beginning, but he's been fully responsible from the womb as well. His obligation before God to be faithful and to be truthful was there from the beginning. He knew that. His ability to discern what is right and what is wrong has also been with him from the very beginning. And he knew that too. He, in other words, owns the fact that he is a morally responsible being who has chosen regularly throughout his life to sin. You know, in 1 John 1, this is true of all of us, because in 1 John 1, we read that if anyone claims to be without sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. You see, repentance must be honest, not just about the presence of sin, but the source of it, and that is our own hearts. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So as we think about repentance, let's think about what this means for us. What I think it means is that it needs, I need to go deeper than recognising that what I did was wrong or, or even analysing the decisions that I might have made or the circumstances that enabled it to happen. That's good to do. It is good to do. But repentance also needs to take responsibility for the heart that gave rise to the sin and do some soul-searching there. What is it about me that I need to own up to and take responsibility for? What is it that I desire or maybe that I don't desire enough such that I have fallen short in this area? What wisdom has God taught me that I know about that I'm not embracing? How am I lacking in faith? What truth am I in denial of? Because you know what? I'm not a victim of my sin. I am the perpetrator of it. Well, it's now that the psalm starts to pivot. I bet you're glad to hear. (laughs) David has recognised and confessed the truth of his sin before God. He's taken personal responsibility for it. He's laid bare before God a desperate, guilty sinner. And so there can be no self-justification, no pride restoring, but I'm going to work on this now, rebuilding. And so he turns to the only place that he can turn. Repentance knows it needs God. Listen to the longing in these moving verses as David cries out to God for redemption. Verse 7 to 9. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Now, I want you to know something. I want you to notice David's confidence in God's power to actually do that and to do what he asks. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. You cleanse me. I'll be clean. 
You wash me and I will be whiter than snow if you do it. See, there's a longing, but, but it's not despair. Do you notice that? It's eager. It's eager. God, sin has so stained me that I cannot wash it from myself, but you can. And if you clean me, then I won't just be clean, I'll be polished, I'll be radiant. I'm broken, but I want to hear joy and gladness. My sin is always before my eyes, but Lord, I want you to hide your face from it. Remove every blemish of my iniquity. I hate it, take it away. See, repentance longs for redemption. But verses 10 to 12 reveal something else. It's not enough for David to have his guilt taken away because the repentant heart longs for more than that. And maybe this is the difference between repentance and regret. See, regret is feeling the burden of guilt. It feels bad for a wrong and so wishes it could undo it somehow. It's the faithless and self-concerned regret of Judas or Saul. Now, repentance too also feels that burden, but repentance also mourns for a righteous heart. It desires the good that it failed to be. It longs to be made new. And so David calls on God to do a new work of creation in him. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. I don't want a polluted heart that's going to last after another man's wife. I want a pure one that wants what you want and desires what is right. I don't want a wandering spirit that goes astray from you and then compounds sin upon sin as I just go ahead and do what is right in my own eyes. I want a steadfast one that won't waver, that, that knows what is right and honourable and follows through on in faith and I know, God, that you can do that in me. Because what David really desires is actually God himself. Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What Christian, when struck by their sin, cannot relate with that longing? We grieve our shortcomings we long to actually be godly and to have it back together again and to be strong and to be clear-minded, to be rejoicing in our relationship with God. That's what we actually want. You know, that last line in verse 12 could also be worded this way, and grant me a noble spirit to sustain me. Now, doesn't that resonate with you? It reminds me of this um, wonderful exhortation of Paul's in Philippians 4, because David's saying, I want my inner life to be full of grace. Look at Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, isn't that your longing? 
Isn't it beautiful? That's what the repentant heart desires. And so that's what the repentant heart prays to God and asks for. David wants God to free him from the shackles of his own sinful heart and set him once more on the path that in his heart he is actually longing to run on. See, repentance longs to honour God. Look, verse 13 to 15. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. I want you to notice there the powerful connection between being shown God's grace and the desire to testify to others about that grace. As as a sinner, as a transgressor who's been shown the grace of God, David wants to help other sinners now turn back to God. He wants to say to them, brother, sister, turn back to God. See what he has been like with me. That's who he is. That's what he's like. He's going to be like that for you if you turn to him. Save me, God, because I want my tongue to sing of your righteousness. If you'd only open my lips, I'll praise you with them. See, this is a heart now that is unburdened. Have you noticing that? This is a heart that's being set free. And all it can do is speak. The tone of the psalm has changed. It's altogether different. It's as if his testimony throughout that psalm of God's ways, his salvation, his righteousness, his glory, his love, his faithfulness, has actually given David a new assurance even as he speaks it that God will indeed show him mercy because that's the kind of God he is. Look at verse 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. See, repentance realises You know what? God is compassionate and he is merciful. Sinners know that they don't impress God by performances of religion or trying to make up for their sin by performing some worthy deed. The one that God is going to lift up and exalt is going to be the one that comes to God on their knees and with empty hands, offering nothing but a contrite heart. As John would write later in the New Testament, but if we confess our sins, God is gracious and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, the psalm finishes with a chastened king calling on God to make him and his people stronger, materially but also spiritually. He says, may God make Jerusalem strong, but more importantly, a place of righteousness that the offerings of his people might actually be something that does delight in him. Because remember, he said you wouldn't delight in it, but now he's saying, God, I want you to make it the kind of place that you do delight in, where those things do delight in you. And you notice that there is the boldness that's now come about. I mean, he began this psalm with a cry for mercy. Now he's saying, hey, God, would you bless me? Would you bless us? A blessing, though, that isn't going to testify to the world about David's greatness, but about God. And his goodness to his people.
This, friends, is the sinner's psalm. It's a song of repentance. It's a song that is full of pain because any song with sin at its root is cause is going to be. But because of the God that David was singing it to, a song of repentance becomes a song of healing and renewal and hope. David was a king that truly represented his people and that he fell short, just like they did. But I think you know where I'm going with this, don't you? To our greater king, of course, Jesus, the one who had no sin but actually became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. David received mercy for his sin. We can receive mercy for our sin because on the cross, Jesus in his innocence did not. And that is why I had that scene from the crucifixion as our second reading. That wonderful conversation between our king and a repentant criminal who recognised that in death he was actually getting what his deeds deserved. But with nothing to ask for but mercy, was bold to ask the innocent Christ to remember him. And in the midst of his pain, he got to hear that majestic promise from Jesus that I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, because of the man dying next to him, this crucified criminal would end that day counted not just among the forgiven, but among the righteous. Friends, is Psalm 51 your song to God? If so, rejoice in that, that you can sing it and keep singing it all your days. Repentance is not something you did once. It's something you do for your whole life. It describes your heart. But let me ask you, does it need to become your song? Then pray that song today to God and make it your song. Ask God to lift the burden of your sin from you and give you a heart to please him. Do you know, in Psalm 51, verse 7, David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. You know, in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, there's a picture of all of the saved in their countless numbers gathered before the throne of God and their robes are white. And the angel said, these are they who have come out of the great trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the thief on the cross is numbered amongst them and David is numbered amongst them. And you, if you love Jesus, will be numbered amongst them. So brothers and sisters, repent and believe the good news.